0: Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be looking at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on the pew right there in front of you and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, If you've been with us, you know we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together. And so far, uh, we've seen very clearly the writer of Hebrews has established that Jesus is supreme over all. He is God's perfect and final revelation to us. He is Greater than all things, he's greater than the angels. And so, the writer of Hebrews has encouraged us that we need to listen to Jesus, he is supreme. And so, we need to listen to him and not neglect the great salvation that he offers. Jesus is our only hope in this life, and in the life to come, he is able to help us no matter what may befall us. And so, we've seen these truths from the scripture in these first two chapters. And now we'll turn our attention to Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand, as I read the text for us this morning. This is what the holy and true Word of God says. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You would pray with me. Father, just as we sang a moment ago our Desire is that we might glorify Christ in all that we say and do. And so, Lord, I pray that we would glorify Christ as we study your word today, that we would understand it, that we would see it clearly, and that we would respond to it in repentance and in faith. Lord, there are many things that can distract us in these moments, things we might be worried about or anxious about or troubled about. Our minds are tempted to wander to so many places, but I pray, Lord, that you would do a work through your Holy Spirit in this time we have to study your word, that you might draw us in, that you might help us to to see and to respond to the truth that you've given us through Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. Well, again, happy... Father's Day to all you dads this morning. We do have a little gift for you, a happy Father's Day pen. You can pick up one of those on your way out today. I became a father for the first time just over 20 years ago, June 6, 1999. I remember that moment very clearly. We're there in Bowling Green in the hospital. They placed this life in my hands, (laughs) And I remember looking down at my son and being introduced to what it means to be a father and feeling a combination of pride and excitement and of utter terror and fear. And I still feel all of those emotions uh, very often as a parent. It can be a confusing thing to be a parent in our culture today because the world has many distortions when it comes to what parenthood is supposed to look like what fatherhood motherhood what all that entails and there are many places we can look and find very few answers as to well what is it that truly a father should be a mother should be for example not long ago I picked up a dictionary and just looked to think I wonder what the the definition of a father was and it simply said a male parent <laughs> well that's not real helpful when you're seeking to be a father but there is a place we can go. Uh, there is a resource that God has given us that can help us to understand what it truly looks like to be a father, a mother, what, what we are to be according to God's Word, what it looks like to be a, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, how we're to respond, how we're to act, and we find those answers in God's Word. And specifically, as we come to the book of Hebrews, we find answers regarding what it means to be a part of this family of faith that we've been brought into, And we've talked before, in this room, we probably have all types of relationships. There's probably a wide range from very functional to very dysfunctional relationships with our mother and our father and our siblings and our children. But what we find is that when we're brought into this family of faith, we we have this spiritual family that we're a part of. We are the brethren, we're the brothers, and we're the sisters in the faith. Christ is our perfect older brother who leads us. God is our Father. And as we've been walking through Hebrews together, we've seen very clearly who God is, who Jesus is, the the supremacy of Christ. And now, as we come to chapter 3, the writer is turning his attention now towards us and and what we're to do, what our focus is to be in light of the great truths that we've learned about Christ. And so as we looked last week at 10 points related to how Christ is able to help us, I'm back to three points this week. But these points relate to how we're now to respond and specifically what we're called to do as we see this phrase in Hebrews three 1, this, this heavenly calling we share in. We're going to talk about what that calling is and what it is we're called to do. And beginning there with the first point in your outline, we find that Christians are called to holiness. We're called to holiness. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, Holy brothers, this this word is the brethren. It's a reference to the brothers and sisters in the faith. If you are a follower of Christ today, this is a reference to you. It says, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters in the faith, you who share in this heavenly calling, in a heavenly calling. And we usually use that word calling in the church to refer to things like a, a pastor's call to the ministry or a missionary's call to the mission field. I've been a part of search committees on both sides of those committees before, and that's usually a question we ask uh, candidates for pastor, for associate pastor. Tell us about your, your call to the ministry. Years ago, when Sandy and I were applying to go to the mission field, that was a, a question we had to respond to. Tell us about your, your, your calling to the mission field. And we think of these terms as a a special designation from God, uh, a special call that He's put on our life, a a direction He wants us to pursue. But what we find here in Hebrews 3 is that a calling is not just reserved for the the pastor, the minister, the missionary, but there's a calling on all of our lives as followers of Jesus. The writer here says that this is a, a heavenly calling. Helps us to see where this call comes from. It's a call from God to us, and notice how the Scripture portrays this compared to how often we talk about our experience. So often, experientially, we talk about us calling to God, us reaching out to God, us looking for God, and yet that the biblical term here is God calls to us. God pursues us. God's the initiator in this relationship. He, he is called to us and then we have the opportunity to respond to them, to Him. The writer here says that in that response that, that we share in this heavenly calling. So to share in it means we, we participate in it. We, we are participants. I mentioned became a father a little over 20 years ago. There's something about this, this 20th birthday that's made Sandy and I a bit nostalgic, and so we've been looking back through old pictures of our kids, and as we've looked through these pictures, we we found all these things our kids have participated in. Uh, many of you parents can identify with this. You, you spend so much of your life uh, mo- taxiing your kids around all these things they're a part of, they participate in, and, and so we've been looking through all these pictures of different uh, sporting events and teams and different activities and groups and and all these things where they were participants. And you may have had that experience as well. Maybe you're a participant in something. When you're a participant, you're not necessarily in charge of it. You're not in control of it. You, you haven't designed it or set it up. You just have to show up and play your part. You are participating. You're a participant. What does the writer mean here when he says that we, we share in this heavenly calling? He says we're, we're participating in something that, that we didn't design He's already said very clearly, Jesus is the founder of our faith. We didn't find Jesus, He found us. He is the foundation of our faith. He, he has designed this. God is the author and perfecter. He is the creator. He is sovereign. And in that, He has invited us in to participate in this heavenly calling. So what does it look like to respond then to this heavenly calling? Well, it looks like a pursuit of holiness, Notice here this designation he gives in verse one. He refers to the brethren as holy brothers. That this is a, a mark of the Christian life. Christians are called to holiness. That that word holiness, that, that adjective describing holiness, is used over nine hundred times in the Bible. And most often the word used in the Old Testament means to, to cut or to separate. The the picture here of holiness is we are cut out from the world, we are separated from the world, and we are set aside to live for the purposes of God, so our life then should look radically different than the world around us. That There should be a marked difference. We often refer to this as repentance. Repentance is we were walking in our sin and we stopped and we responded to this heavenly call and we turned away from our sin. And so now the fruit of our life looks tangibly different than it looked before. There's a marked difference here. Why? Because now we are compelled to pursue holiness. And yet the reality is for so many who refer to themselves as Christians today, there's no pursuit of holiness whatsoever. And just like if we were to encounter the absent father, the abusive father, the one who has neglected all parental responsibilities, and if they held their head high and said, well, you know, I am a male parent. I'm a father. We would probably question their understanding of that term. I think the day has come for us to question those who claim the name Christian, and yet their life looks no different than the world around them. And we live in a culture where it's very common in the the popular media and the celebrities of our day that their lives are on display, we we can see so often how unholy they are and how they are pursuing things that have nothing to do with the things of God, and yet they will get to the podium, and what will they say? Well, I just want to thank God. I just want to thank Jesus. I read this last year, one such celebrity whose life is just marked by, by utter wickedness. I read an article where they were lecturing people on what a Christian should do. Well, as a Christian, and yet their life represents nothing related to what Jesus says in the Scripture. And so we need to discern these things. We need to consider these things. If, if we are called to holiness, and yet there's an absolute void of any interest in holiness, that there's not even a, a mark of a pursuit of holiness in our life, then, then perhaps we need to consider, are we truly a Christian to begin with? Holiness is not just a pursuit for those senior Christians or those super spiritual Christians. Holiness should be the pursuit of every believer. In fact, the Scripture is pretty serious about this and says that without it, you're not going to heaven. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this isn't something reserved for the minister or the missionary. This isn't something reserved for those VIP Christians. No, this is something that should be at the heart of every one of us who's a follower of Christ. And if it's not there, if we don't desire holiness in our lives, then that's an indication that we aren't truly followers of Jesus. That, that we've accepted the absolute minimal definition we can come up with, with G, of G, what it means to be a Christian. But we don't know the biblical definition of what it means to be a Christian. And we're called to holiness. Not just that. Point two, Christians are called to consider Jesus. In verses 1 through 6, again, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Considering. Well, what does that mean to consider Jesus? Well, think of how you might use that term consider. There are lots of things we we consider. A lot of times we use that term in reference to maybe a a purchase. For example, uh, you might be considering buying a new car. I read somewhere not long ago that the average American will purchase six cars in their lifetime. So some of y'all are doing the math right now. Some of you are above average. (laughs) You already bought more than six. Some of you are on your way. And so think about that process. I'm sure in a group this size there's some of you who think very little of it and you just walk on a lot and you buy the car and you're going about your business but for for many others there's a lot of consideration that takes place they, it might start with you just driving around and there's a, a vehicle that kind of catches your notice and so you start just kind of observing that particular vehicle maybe you do some research on it maybe, maybe you start to have conversations i mean people aren't shy about talking about cars I was, a couple weeks ago, Dad and I were going to parties so I could get my senior discount. And didn't ask for it. I just think I'm old. That's how I feel. But anyways, I was about to walk in the door and just some stranger, didn't know him, never met him before, get out of Dad's truck and he just starts talking to me about my Dad's truck. Just starts up a conversation. He's observing, he's considering. He's thinking about getting one like it. So when we're considering a vehicle purchase, we... Don't seem to have any trouble with this process of looking and observing and talking and researching and and thinking, through. well, how much is this going to cost me and can I afford this? And then we start to commit to it and make sacrifices for it. I mean, we spend a significant part of our budget at times on vehicles and maintenance and insurance. We spend a lot of time thinking about these things, considering them. The sad reality is many of us spend more time considering our next purchase than we spend considering our faith in Christ. The writer here says we are to consider Jesus. We're to look to him. We're to observe him. We're to have conversations with the stranger at Hardee's about him. (laughs) We're to commit to Him. We're to make sacrifices for Him. We're we're to think on Him and talk about Him and meditate on His Word and listen to His Word and seek to obey His Word. The writer here reminds us of why Jesus is worthy of our consideration. He first points out it's because Jesus is our mediator. He says, verse 1, that He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. That word apostle, that role apostle was someone sent from God as a messenger. We see in the Scripture in the New Testament, the, the apostles, the disciples, they're, they're sent out by Christ with a message from Him. That's what an apostle is. It's a, it's a messenger. How do we see Christ as that? Well, the Scripture says clearly, God has, sent, God has sent His Son to us. Jesus is sent from the Father to do the will of the Father. He's the apostle of God to us to bring us the Word, and He is the Word. Not just that, it says that he is the high priest. When you think of that role of the high priest in the Old Testament, the high priest is one who would go before God on behalf of the people. They would make the the offering on behalf of the people. They would represent the people before God. And so apostle, someone God sends to the people. High priest, someone goes to God on behalf of the people. That's the role of the mediator. They, They stand before God on behalf of the people taking the message to the people from God, and going to God on behalf of the people. And you see how Jesus is the perfect mediator. In fact, He's the only mediator. And in a world of great confusion and false religions and false teachers where people say, well, I can get to God this way, I can get to God this way, the Scripture says to us clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so as we seek to understand better who Jesus is, this is pinnacle that we understand He is the mediator. He is the way to the Father. Jesus says that of Himself. The way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me. He's our mediator, so we need to consider Him. Not only that, He is perfectly faithful. Verse 2, Jesus was faithful. Faithful to Him who appointed Him. He is the picture of perfect faithfulness in the Scripture. And this should be a comfort because we struggle in our faith. We we wrestle with our faith. We, We are not perfectly faithful at all. In fact, he gives this comparison between Jesus and Moses. And we can go back through the life of Moses. We can see so many times when Moses lacked faith. You remember Moses' call as the deliverer was to lead the people to the land of promise, but Moses doesn't get to take them into the land of promise. Why? Because he lacked faith. And if all this was dependent on my faith and your faith, we struggle. But what's of critical importance is not the strength of our faith, but is the object of our faith. And so the good news of the gospel is that You might have the weakest faith in this room, but if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then your faith's secure. But this isn't some type of strength competition today. (laughs) Who's got the strongest faith? No, it's who's the object of our faith. And if the object of our faith is Jesus, well, good news, Jesus was perfectly faithful to the cross. Jesus is the one who died in our place on the cross. Jesus is the one who did not lack faith, had perfect faith. Therefore, our trust and our hope can be in Him. We can have confidence in Him, so He is worthy of our consideration. We also see that we should consider Him because He's greater than Moses. And that's what the writer spends much of his time talking about here in verses 2 through 6. And there's a reason for that, that this letter was written to Hebrew Christians. These were... Uh, people who had grown up in Judaism. They, They knew the Old Testament and central to the Old Testament was Moses. And so they held Moses in a high, high regard. And so it's important for the writer of Hebrews here to help them to see, listen, there's somebody greater than Moses. In fact, Moses was pointing you towards Jesus. And now on this side of the equation, we can read the New Testament, we can go back and we can better see how all these pieces fit together. So think about the time we spent in Exodus. We have that picture there of the people enslaved in the land of Egypt. And they're crying out for a deliverer. That they can't just walk themselves out of slavery. And what does God do? God sends them a deliverer in Moses who leads them out of their slavery towards the land of promise. Does that remind you of anything? The Scripture says that All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture says that we are born slaves to sin. We can't just walk ourselves out of it. So nobody in this room has the power to just stop sinning. I mean, if you did, this would be a lot easier. (laughs) I I can only imagine what my pastoral appointments would look like if you were to come to my office and, and if we had the power to just stop sinning and... You could tell me about all the things you're doing and I could just look to you and say, okay, stop it. (laughs) Be all done with it. Well, it's not that easy. Well, sure, just stop. But you can't stop. No, we are enslaved to sin, the scripture says, apart from Christ. And so we need a deliverer to come just like the people in Egypt needed to deliver. And God sent them Moses, God sends us Jesus. And he's the one who rescues us from our slavery to sin. And now what does he do? He leads us on this journey towards the land of promise. What does God do with Moses and the people? Well, he uses Moses as the mediator to give his law to the people. So he saves them and then he tells them how to live in preparation for the land of promise. He takes his people out of Egypt. Now he's taking Egypt out of his people. What does he do for us? He sends us a deliverer in Jesus Christ who rescues us from our slavery to sin. Now we have his word to obey. Now he's taken the world out of us in preparation for the world to come and he's leading us on a journey to the land of promise. But there's a key difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses never got to see the promised land with the people. He never got to usher them into the land of promise. They they got to go, but he didn't get to lead them. Why? Because he failed. But Jesus doesn't fail. He's perfect in his obedience. And so we can have full confidence and assurance that he will take us to the land of promise. And that's why our hope and our trust can be in him. He, He is able to do what he said he would do. And so the writer here compares the two. He talks about the faithfulness of Moses and Jesus, the glory of Moses and Jesus, but helps us to see how all these things about Moses, they were just preparing the people's way for Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, faithful mediator who is greater than Moses. And so that the application he gives is we need to look to Jesus. We need to place our focus on Jesus. Friends, I don't don't know fully what every person in this room is enduring or experiencing or or what has befallen you or what has has overcome you or will overcome you. That this is not just some gimmick, but, but what we all desperately need in every moment of our life is to stop and to just set our gaze on Christ look to it. The writer of Hebrews will continue to bring this up. And in fact, he'll go through Hebrews 11 and give us all these examples of the faith, but the point of that is not try to be like Abraham and like Moses and like all these others, but the point of that is is look at what they were pointing us to. Hebrews 12 beginning in verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, look to Jesus. Jesus is faithful. Jesus endured, Jesus persevered and in, in, in Jesus, through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. You, you and I can endure and can persevere as well. And that brings us to that third point then. Christians are called to persevere in the faith. This is that great doctrine of the reformation perseverance of the saints we we are called to persevere and to endure in the great news of the gospel as if we are truly born again in christ we will persevere till the end and we will persevere to the end because we are truly born again in christ he he keeps us he he holds us we we persevere verse 6 the writer says christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if. He's given this language of the the household of faith and this house that God was building up through Moses, and now there's someone greater than Moses over this house, and He says, we are part of this house if. It's conditional. Again, not, not everyone who says they're a Christian is actually a Christian. Now, not everybody who thinks they're a Christian is actually a believer. There's a qualification here. If. And what's that qualification? If we identify ourselves as Christian. If we're a member of Bloomfield Baptist Church. We're a part of God's house. If. We give money to the church or, or if we go to Sunday school or, or if we attend church on a regular basis or if we take the Lord's Supper or if we've been baptized, if we read our Bible. Now He doesn't say any of those things. But that doesn't mean they lack significance. But notice what he says here. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If we hold fast, hold fast. When we've talked before about how how ridiculous so many of our Christian slogans and bumper stickers and t-shirts are, phrases like let go and let God. Apologize if you have that bumper sticker this morning. I'm sure you can find one to put over top of it. Maybe one that says, hold fast. Hold firm. That the Christian life is not let go and let God and Jesus take the wheel. That the Christian life is hold firm to Christ. It is as if the storm is brewing and coming and that there is an anchor there we can hold on to and as the wind rips through and the storm comes through, we will hold firmly to Christ. And the good news is is that that the perseverance is not guaranteed by the firmness of our grip, but the firmness of His grip. We're looking back through these pictures. I've noticed some when our Kids were really little, and we go to different sporting events, parades, and especially if there's a big crowd in that picture, I'm always holding my child's hand. Now, my child might look at that and say, well, look, Daddy, I was holding your hand. Wrong. (laughs) Because the grip of a two-year-old will last until there's a snow cone (laughs) or an ice cream cone or a puppy walks by. They will let go quickly. But the grip of a mother or father, that's tight. That, that's firm. That, that's where the security rests. And there's a grip that's actually tighter than the grip that any of you as a mother or father or aunt and uncle or grandparent have on a child. There, there's the grip in the hand of God. And God says when we're in that grip, when we're in the grip of the Son and the Father and sealed by the Spirit, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. No one. Nothing. No sickness. No death. No crisis. No world falling apart. No bankruptcy. No career shift and change. No betrayal. no, No, nothing can rip us out of the hand of the Father and the Son sealed by the Spirit. We are secure and we will endure. Our call then is to keep our eyes on Jesus and to look to the cross. And no matter what may come our way, as long as we're able to lift our heads, to look to the cross of Christ and to look to Jesus. There's a wonderful picture of this I'll close with. and Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia if you're not i'll try to give you the briefest summary you've basically got these fictional works about this this fantasy land and it's to depict in many ways the christian life and and this mystical land there's talking animals and all these things and and the focus is aslan he's the lion he's the christ figure the journey is ultimately towards aslan's land that's the land of promise that there's all types of journeys and things that take place. And in one of those books, Lewis writes in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader*, about a ship that's going to sail towards Aslan's land. And many of these sailors are fretting and worried and that they're in need of a, a boost in confidence. And so one steps up to give them that boost, but it's not this valiant human sailor. It's one of these talking animals. It's, it's a mouse, <laughs> Named Reapy Cheap. This valiant little warrior mouse. But this is what he says about placing that focus on Aslan's land. As others are fretting, he says, My own plans are made. And while I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. And when she fails me, I paddle in my lifeboat. And when she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I've not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise and my eyes on Aslan's land. That focus that Lewis gives us here, the, the focus we're to have as believers. And when the ship is sinking and when our strength is failing, we will look to Christ And we will behold His glory. And we will realize on that day, whatever it is that may befall us, whatever crisis it is that comes our way, there is a day we will take our last gasp of breath on this earth and we will wake up in glory. But friends, hear this. This will only happen for those who share in this heavenly calling and those who have indeed repented and trusted in Christ. And so we invite you today, as we invite you every Lord's day, if you've yet to trust in Jesus and place your full hope in him and look to him, then the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can turn from your sin when you can trust in Christ. And for those of you who have done that and are believers and yet you are struggling today, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ. And so let's put our gaze and our focus on Him. If you will stand with me as we pray and as we sing. Lord, I thank you that our hope today doesn't rest on the magnitude of our faith and the strength of it. It it rests in the one who is perfectly faithful in Christ and in Christ alone. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do through the power of your spirit. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their trust in Christ, would you remove the veil from their eyes so that they might see would you remove whatever barrier it is in their life that's blocking them from considering Jesus that they might see the glory of Christ and respond to God's your gift of Christ in faith and in repentance. You tell us in your word that if any believes in their heart that you raised Jesus from the dead, if they will confess Christ as Lord, that you will save them. And I pray you do that saving work today. And I pray for many here who have experienced that saving work, but Lord, are struggling, and are anxious, and are worried. Lord, that you would help us each to look to Jesus. And that we would live every day and every breath with a desire to bring glory to Christ and Christ alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.